Well, hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Thoughts of Quads. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-hosts, Maria Wickvilla and Caroline Diarty Edwards. As you all know by now, Caroline is the former head of admissions at NCOD and the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions. And Maria is the founder of Applicant Lab. Uh, right around now, uh, one after the other, uh, business schools are basically releasing their employment reports for this year. Uh, and I'll tell you that the big takeaway is clear to me. And the takeaway is that MBAs are clearly in great demand based on the compensation that they're receiving right at graduation. And we just published a report on um, the class that is generally the highest paid in the world, and that is the class of Stanford MBAs. And the numbers, uh, frankly, are staggering. Uh, the average total compensation for a Stanford MBA this year uh, reached more than $275,000. That's up nearly $20,000 from 2022. Now, how, how does that even happen? Well, for one thing, the average base salary is one eighty nine, slightly more. The sign-on bonus, the average uh, this year, grew actually an astounding twenty five percent to forty two thousand two hundred forty nine. And then one thing that Stanford does that a lot of other schools have discontinued doing is asking its graduates what their expected performance bonus for the year will be. And the average there, and this is an eye opener as well, is over ninety nine thousand. Now, how do you make sense of these numbers? I'll tell you what the real secret behind them is, private equity. Stanford, more than any other school, and this includes schools known for finance like Wharton, Columbia, Chicago, Booth, puts more uh, of its class as a percentage into the field of private equity, which is without question the highest paying field that an MBA can enter into PE jobs. And that's largely because Stanford uh, has an advantage over any other school. And it's not the instruction uh, in PE at Stanford that makes them stand out. It's their admissions policies. Stanford is able to bring in a high percentage of people who already work in PE or venture capital or in investment management. Uh, and then they're funneled out into PE jobs again. Uh, that pay very highly. And that is really the secret behind these very big numbers. And um, it's just it's just really astounding. I mean, don't they shock you, Maria? I don't know. I guess inflation is uh, is a real thing <laughs> everywhere these days, right? I, I, it's, it, it's not shocking. I mean, the numbers for salaries go up every year for the most part. And, um, you know, private equity and those sorts of similar roles are, are amongst the highest paying you know, not just out of business school, but in the world, probably. And so, you know, as you as you pointed to, I think Stanford, when it comes to to letting people in, it's the exact opposite of the adage of garbage in, garbage out. Like it's like gold in, gold out, right? They they let in people who are already extraordinarily accomplished in these fields. And so what employer wouldn't want to take someone who already has, you know, a couple of years of VC or PE experience then went through the two-year Stanford program and is now emerging on the other side of that. Like, you know, if these if these folks, you know, they might make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but if they can bring in millions of dollars a year of profit to their firms in one way or the other, 
then it sort of seems like a win-win situation for everyone. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, Caroline, you have any perspective on this from from sort of a European lens? Well, from my perspective of living here in well, I'm three miles from the Stanford campus. Yes. And a lot of the graduates stay in this area. And the cost of living is one of the highest in the world. So I think that also inflates the the salary is for these graduates because there's a huge chunk. I don't know exactly what the percentage is that stay in the Bay Area, but it's a very large number. And the, the cost of living is extraordinarily high. So employers have to reflect that in the office that they're making. Yes, absolutely. And, and that also means that people people sometimes take those numbers at face value. And I think sometimes schools in other areas get penalized in the rankings and you know, in, in how people read that those salary statistics because they are feeding into a very different geographical market. And that's true, I think, in for some of the US schools as well as for sure some of the international schools where the graduates are not necessarily going into such a concentrated geographical region where the where the cost of living is so high. So Stanford in some ways benefits from the high cost of living in the Bay Area because the salary statistics look fantastic as a result. Yes. And I should just put a little granular detail on my comments earlier, which is, you know, this year, nearly a third of Stanford's graduates accepted jobs in just PE or venture capital. And the PE base salary for the 18% of Stanford grads who went into private equity was over 200,000, 215,000 just base salary. Median sign-on bonus is $27,500. But here's, here's the real eye-popping number. Uh, First-year performance bonus is ex- expected of people who go into PE from Stanford, $160,000. If you want to know why Stanford always does so well in rankings, there's your proof. Because essentially, uh, rankings heavily weigh uh, starting compensation. In fact, Pay and placement generally are the two most important metrics in almost all the rankings. And if your MBAs are bringing home the bacon like that, um, your school is going to do exceptionally well in the rankings no matter what. Regardless of how much money these people were earning when they entered the school, and you can bet they're earning well into six figures to be able to come out and make money like that. And as we have said here before, jobs in private equity are hard to get, and generally they go to MBAs who already have worked in private equity, which is sort of a catch-22 of some kind because, you know, many people will see these numbers and say, oh my God, I want to work in PE. But frankly, if you don't have prior PE experience in which you will be paid a good sum of money to begin with, your chances of actually landing a PE job post-MBA are pretty low. The other thing we want to talk about, and I think this is fascinating, is a column that Caroline has written that's on her website, and it's on the major differences between the European and the U.S. MBA programs. And and I, I love this piece because it very clearly articulates, you know, the things that you may not basically absorb or or you might even take for granted and does so in a way that really uh, creates a pretty stark contrast between what an MBA experience is like in the U.S. and what one might be like in Europe. Uh, Caroline, I'll let you take the lead on this. Sure. Thank you, John. Yeah, I wanted to write this article um, for a while because I often get asked um, by candidates about this, right? People often come to me 
as a coach because they're thinking about an international MBA program and they want to talk to me about INSEAD and other international options. And I've lived in the US for many years. I'm very familiar with the US schools as well. So it's often a discussion I have. So now I will be able to send them the article on your website, read this first, and then we'll talk. So yeah, I'm very happy to have, have that as a sort of primer for some candidates who are asking questions about that. To me, I think the key difference is the the international dimension at the European schools. And I think that infuses the whole experience in a way that makes it very different from the experience that you will have at a US school. And so, and that's something that has really been a core part of the the DNA of these schools from the very beginning. Um, you know, INSEAD was set up about 70 years ago with the aim of, and it was set up by some former um, Harvard professors who wanted to set up, you know, the Harvard Business School of Europe and really make it a pan-European program. And as as the as the decades progressed, um, you know, that pan-European vision became really a global vision. And other schools, um, such as London Business School, ESA, IE, um, increasingly, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, HSA, and Paris, and so on, have also um, attracted a, a very global audience. And so that's very much part of why you would go to one of these schools if you're looking for that international perspective. So you will be in a classroom and you'll be working in teams with people who have incredibly different backgrounds from you, professionally as well as culturally. And that can make it very challenging, right? It can make it extremely frustrating sometimes because you'll be working with people who just have a totally different mindset to you, who's come at things from a very, very different perspective. And that, that can be tough, um, but it's also an incredibly rich learning experience. And I've talked to professors who have taught both at schools like INSEAD and London Business School, as well as schools in the US. And they say it's actually harder in many ways to teach at the international schools because you have that incredible diversity of perspective that you may have something thrown at you from completely left field that you have not anticipated. And you know, sometimes I've I've seen professors struggle with that, quite frankly, because it is such a, a an extraordinary mix of um, backgrounds and experience and perspectives and opinions. And so I think that is very enriching for someone who is looking to be internationally mobile in their career. Sometimes candidates come to me and they are based in the US and they're thinking, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to go and live in Fontainebleau or Singapore or London or Paris or Barcelona for a year and, and, and you know, have a wonderful international experience. And then I'll come back to the US and their career is completely focused on the US. And in most cases, I would advise those people to do their MBA in the US. Don't do your MBA as a sort of like, you know, international exchange. <laughs> exactly. You need to think about where where your uh, recruiting opportunities are going to be and where your alumni network is going to be. And if you are focused on staying in the US, in most cases, I think you're better off doing your MBA here because your alumni network will be stronger in the US. And Caroline, uh, don't, don't most of the European schools actually put a cap on the number of students that they enroll from their home country? Well, so I think they have to be careful about saying if they put a cap or not. But in practice, they are looking to get as diverse an audience as possible. And 
their, their marketing efforts are really geared towards attracting an applicant pool that is very diverse. So I don't think it's necessarily much harder to get in as a domestic applicant. In fact, you know, I know, for example, at London Business School, I've heard them complain that, you know, they have problems getting enough Brits to apply because the Brits all want to go somewhere else to do their MBA. So sometimes, in fact, these schools are not getting as many domestic applicants as they would like. So they really gear the marketing efforts to to bring in, attract that international audience. And therefore, um, you know, I don't think that you're necessarily at a disadvantage if you come from one particular pool over the other, because the the applicant pool is is incredibly diverse. Yeah, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that in the U.S. schools, you're going to find plenty of international students, but always uh, in the in the top schools, the majority of students will be domestic. And if you go to a London Business School or HSA Paris uh, or INSEAD, uh, you're never going to find the majority of students coming from the home country as you always will in a top program in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And I was looking at your article on the Columbia class profile, and I think it's 47% international. So that's that's pretty significant. It's probably the most international program in the U.S. But if you dig into that, a lot of those students have lived in the U.S. They're probably green card holders and a substantial chunk. So their work experience is often from the U.S., even though they may have an international profile. Whereas if you go to one of these international programs, then you're more likely to be in a, in a cohort of people who have really literally you know, worked all over the world and are bringing that very diverse perspective. And another key difference, of course, is that a lot of the programs in Europe are one-year programs rather than two-year programs. Um, so INSEAD had pioneered the one-year format when, when the school was founded, and a lot of other schools have followed suit. There are some exceptions. So London Business School has a two-year program, but they do offer accelerated options where you can graduate after 15 months or 18 months. And then ESA is a two-year program but the, the majority of the programs in Europe are one-year programs. And that's a very compelling value proposition, right? It means that you are paying tuition fees and living expenses and, and foregoing your salary for one year rather than two years. And we can see in the salary statistics that a lot of those graduates are commanding impressive salaries when they graduate. So these programs typically do very well when you're looking at return on investment. And that that is often a big reason why people choose these programs because they may be coming from countries where they don't have those impressive salaries that we were just talking about in you know, the private equity crowd that goes to Stanford who are earning six-figure sums before they go to business school. That is not necessarily the case for many of the students feeding into the international programs. Often they're coming from um, emerging economies where the salaries are much, much lower and so they have not had the saving capacity or perhaps they don't want to take out a loan to to pay you know 200 300,000 to to get themselves through a top US program and in that case the the one year proposition is very compelling right yep totally maria do you have any thoughts on the differences in terms of how you advise clients yeah, I think one of the things that Caroline pointed out in her article that I have also advised people on is that um, the European programs do tend to place value on more uh, seasoned candidates, right? Candidates who are perhaps a little bit older 
than what some of the U.S. programs are looking for. And I think it's it's a deliberate choice because I think they want to bring in students who have a much deeper professional experience who can then contribute much more in, in terms of classroom discussion. And so I think that's what helps Caroline notes in her article that say a one-year program covers about 80% of the same amount of material as a two-year program, even though it's significantly shorter. Uh, and I think the reason they can do that is because the students are coming in with a lot more lived experience and a lot more professional experience. So um, I also, I think the European programs are are a great choice, especially for people who might be a little bit more seasoned. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. schools, I think, sometimes miss out on some terrific talent by focusing a bit more on, on folks who have a, a couple of years less experience. So the European programs can also be great from, from that perspective as well. Caroline, the other differences uh, that you mentioned in your article go to uh, teaching style and international exposure. Obviously, if you have a greater number of classmates uh, that are from far-flung places all over the world, they're going to bring uh, a, a much more international look at every single issue. And you were going, you know, mentioning earlier how some of these views are quite divergent uh, and result in pretty stimulating, if disappointing or uh, <laughs> or difficult conversations uh, in some cases, because obviously, you know, I mean, we're in the U.S. here, you know, often accused of jungle capitalism and other parts of the world uh, may even be anti-capitalist or have a much more gentle view of capitalism, you're more likely to be exposed to these various viewpoints in a European classroom, right? Yeah, yes, that's right. And the professors do rely a lot on the input and the perspectives of the students. And as Maria said, that's also why the schools are offered admitting candidates who are on average maybe a year or two older than the average age in the US programs. Because with a one-year format, they can't rely as heavily as the US schools on the case study method because the case study method is great, but it's pretty laborious and it really takes time, right, to teach everything through the case study method. So at a on a one-year program, they will definitely use case studies and that'll be a big component of the, the teaching methodology, but they will also have a lot of other formats, right? It may be lecture and discussion, it may be simulations, it may be team projects because they are trying to be very efficient in how they are delivering the the knowledge and and, and teaching students uh, and then looking to you know be very time efficient and so because they're not relying so much on the case study method having that experience and richness of professional and cultural experience in the classroom enables the professors to draw on that and rely on that more heavily than referring back to a case study all the time, right? So that facilitated discussion is really a key component of, of the learning experience. And, you know, people right. often comment that they learn more, in fact, from their fellow classmates than they do for the prof from the professors. And it's not disparaging to the professors. It's just that, you know, it, you are working alongside people, learning alongside people who have such fascinating experience and so different from what you've done. And it can be very life-changing for some people, right? You will be uh, enticed to, uh, perhaps enticed to a career path that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of because of the, the discussions and the learning you have in, in, that, in that very diverse environment. Right. And of course, this all affects the, uh, the uh, alumni network. 
and the recruitment opportunities, as you point out in your article. Uh, how, how does it change one's uh, network that you graduate into? Yeah, so you have a much more globally dispersed network. So whereas with the U.S. schools, the the you know the, the huge bulk of the network is is based in the U.S. and North America, and certainly they do have a global network, especially the bigger schools like Wharton and Harvard Business School. Um, they do have a global network, but it's much thinner on the ground internationally than than the schools like INSEAD and London Business School. And so that is tremendously valuable if you're thinking that you might be internationally mobile in the future. So, I mean, my personal experience is um, when I graduated from INSEAD, I went to work in Indonesia. Um, and since then, I've worked, well, I worked in France with INSEAD. I've also lived in India. And each time I, that I've moved, I've been able to tap into a in, local INSEAD network. And that has been absolutely invaluable. My husband, as you know, did his MBA at Stanford. And so now that we're here in Silicon Valley, right, there's no better network to have than Stanford GSB. Sure. But when we were moving around, he often tapped into my network because there were just there's just far more INSEAD graduates around the world than there are Stanford GSB graduates because so many of them, it's a much smaller program and so many of them um, stay in the US. And in fact, the vast majority, as we've said, or a big chunk stay in, in the Bay Area. Right. So I think you need to think about, you know, where you're going to be in the future and which network would be useful for you. It's also, of course, a big challenge for the careers services team, because if you are um, managing career services for a school like INSEAD, you know, you have to manage relationships with recruiters really around the world. Right. The graduates are going to work in I'm not sure how many it is now, but it's sort of 60, 70, 80 different countries around the world every year straight out of the program. And so that's um, that's much more complex to manage than it is for um, for the US schools where they're primarily feeding into a domestic market. On, on the other hand, I mean, that, that can also be a strength. And I saw that when I was working at INSEAD because you know, we went through an economic downturn. And if you're reliant on one specific geography, that can hit you very hard. Um, but I remember at that time, uh, recruitment had gone down, for example, in Europe, um, but it had picked up in the Middle East. And so it means that I guess the schools in some ways have a more diversified portfolio of recruitment opportunities because they are um, feeding into positions all over the world and in a lot of different industries. And therefore, um, they can that can be a great buffer in a time of economic turmoil because graduates may well be able to find may well find that recruiters from certain regions are still recruiting heavily, even if in some other regions they are not. Right. Now, Maria, from your perspective, if you're an American and you want to work in the United States, but you want the kind of global exposure a European MBA would give you, will you have difficulty coming back and working in the U.S. after you graduate with an MBA from a London Business School um, or uh, an NCAD or an HSA Paris? What do you think? I'm not sure about difficulty might be overstating it, but I definitely think it would be more challenging, right? If you are studying, say, in New York City and you are recruiting for companies that are based in New York City, it's that much easier to, uh, you know, not only attend their formal recruiting events, but even informally perhaps sign up to do a project with a certain company uh, or things like that. So I do think, you know, as Caroline alluded to, the career services offices 
in these European programs are trying to place students literally all over the world. And so as a result, I do think that it will be the onus will be much more on you if you want to come back to the U.S. However, the good news is if you're already an American citizen or a legal resident, you know, you, you can probably you won't have the, the worry of the work visa and the H-1B lottery and all of that hanging over your head. Uh, but I do I do suspect that it would be you'd have to do a lot more footwork on your own to uh, network your way into that into that role. Right. I'm not sure if, uh, you know. If if the U.S. offices of you know let's say the Chicago office of Bain they might be recruiting in at London Business School for example but it's probably a lot more likely that they're focusing on the schools that are more geographically closer to them so uh, you know as as Caroline said I think you look if you if you want that international experience I I think it's certainly very valuable but just I think go in with eyes wide open that you might have to. Uh, put in a bit more effort and be a bit more flexible in terms of your job opportunities coming back, I suspect. Yeah. And I, Caroline, you think that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, there are people, I mean, I know some of my classmates who've come back to the U.S. and made very successful careers here. So people certainly do make it happen. You just need to be aware, as Maria said, that recruiters aren't going to be recruiting in such large volumes for U.S. offices um, on those European campuses. Something that you may be able to do is um, do an exchange program. So for example, um, from INSEAD, you can exchange to some of the US schools like Wharton and Kellogg. And so often students will do that and spend a semester in the US if they're looking to target the US market. And that enables them to take advantage of career services while they're in the US and, and, uh, and build their network locally. So people certainly do make it work and and the European schools do have a growing network in the US. You just need to be aware that, as Rhea said, you may need to um, be much more proactive in your job search to make it happen if you want to come back to the US. All right. Well, check it out. It's called The Seven Key Differences Between US and European MBA Programs. It's on our homepage Already over 4,500 people have read this story, um, so maybe you'll be 4,501. And uh, you'll also see the, uh, the latest employment reports um, that are tumbling out of the schools. Uh, right now, Stan Stanford and Berkeley just came out. Uh, we have a host of others that are about to come out, and quite a few before the Stanford and Berkeley, including Harvard uh, and Dartmouth-Tuck and others. So. Check them all out. Meantime, thanks for listening. This is John Vernon with Poets and Quants.